This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us then uh, take a breath and center ourselves to worship Almighty God. stand as you are able and join with me in the call to worship then remain standing for our opening hymn it's in the the black hymnal praise God our creator redeemer and sustainer thanks be to God
Listen and receive a reading from the Word of God. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us, according to your grace and mercy. May we affirm our faith with joy and a willing spirit as we hear today's scripture. Our first reading is from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Our second reading is from John chapter 10, verses 14 through 16. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is God's word to God's people. I had the good fortune about uh, 10 years ago to be allowed to go on to a, uh, a sabbatical, um, which I took three months over in the Holy Land, living outside of Jerusalem, between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And it was a marvelous experience. If you haven't done that, uh, we should do that sometime, travel there together. Uh, three months gave me a special experience of really being able to uh, saturate myself into what was happening. And you know, they call the Holy Land... The, the fifth gospel, because it has that power to bring the other four gospels to life for you. Um, in some ways, it's, it's a little startling. You, you remember the story about Saul and Jonathan having their heads cut off and put on spikes. Do you remember that from the Old Testament? Um, probably not one of the stories you read to your kids. <laughs> the wall is there in Beshin, and you can imagine how that might have been. There's a pathway, it's now paved, but it's, we're told that it is the pathway that David took as he fled Jerusalem and went out into the wilderness. And that pathway is the same pathway that Jesus walked as he came down into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. You get a chance to see a lot of synagogues and um, early churches, but uh, the synagogues caught my attention because I was, I was able to kind of imagine, I have a religious imagination that sometimes is hard to control, and I would get into those places and I would imagine what was going on. I would imagine, um, you know, the religious folks sitting there on the, on the sides, the women in the other room, then Jesus coming in and talking. You can imagine those things happening when you're walking on the stones, when you're amid the ruins of a synagogue that was there at that time. I imagine somebody running in and going, here, have you heard the news? Have you heard the news? Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is risen. And, and them going, what? What are you talking about? No, Jesus. You know that guy that did the healings? You know that guy that they tried to kill in his hometown? Remember that guy with the lepers and the bread and the fish? That guy. Well, he, he, was, he was crucified and now he's risen. And they would go, get out of here. No. 
That's, that's not the Messiah that we're expecting. No, no Messiah is going to die on a cross. You're not going to get us to think that this guy is the Messiah. Well, some people might have done that. Some people might have believed that Jesus was the Messiah. We know there were. And the movement spread a bit, and it spread to a time when a guy would have run in, again, to the same synagogue, or maybe he would have run into what was now being called a home house church with the early uh, first generation of followers of Jesus going, here, hey, I have, a, I have a letter from Paul. I have a letter from Paul about what's going on in a whole area here. Let me read it to you. And they start to incorporate the reading of epistles into their worship experience. Up until that point, it's all been Old Testament stuff that they've used as the foundation for their worship. And now there's this letter from Paul to go along with Isaiah or Jeremiah. And, and they, they read that. And then the next generation starts to have a gospel delivered or a letter for the Hebrews delivered that is read. And that generation's is hearing a story about a good Jew who has now become the Messiah, yet you know what? The other Jews are just not catching on to it. And so we start to hear in these later letters a kind of over-againstness to the religious community out of which Jesus came. An over-againstness to the Jews because they're not picking up on Jesus as the Messiah the way the Gentiles are. And the church rotates its vision to where the market is. And the market is outside of Jerusalem. The harvest is outside of Galilee. And it's in what is nowadays Syria and Turkey and Italy and Greece and Egypt. That's where the fruit and the harvest comes. And as the church starts to do that, the letters that they write draw a stronger contrast towards the Jewish community out of which they came. Now, I'm sharing this with you because I think, I think there's a common practice among us folk of drawing distinction, of supporting something by criticizing something. Becoming something by being clear why you don't want to be that. An over-againstness that we do to help maybe solidify or clarify uh, who we are, where we're going, attitudes we might have. Um, you know, we, we might say a, a Jew is like that, or a Muslim is like that, or some people will say, well, people from Westlake Village are like this, or, you know, people from America are like that. We do this. We characterize people. So there's a story. There's a story about St. Peter in heaven, and a whole bunch of Baptists, I don't know whether they're a plane crash or what, a whole bunch of Baptists are coming in, and St. Peter... <laughs> 
St. Peter takes them down the, the walkway and shows them into the room. And um, then a few days later, uh, bad luck befalls Episcopalians, and there's a whole group of them that he's now ushering in, and he goes, shh, 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 don't make a sound. Go, why, 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 why not? The Baptists are in there, and they think they're the only ones here. Now, that's not fair, is it? <laughs> now, you laugh at that because there's, there's something in your experience that says, eh, <laughs> I, I, I know one or two like that, right? So there's, there's a certain amount of accuracy to it, the caricature of the other. That's, that's how it works. There's a little bit of accuracy to it. And with a, with a good dose of, of ignorance in that you don't know any other Baptist except that Baptist, right? And then exaggeration, we do this thing, this over against kind of thing, this going to assumptions and, and uh, making statements about people that in truth probably are not fully true. So I'll tell a story on myself. When I, when I went on this sabbatical, to the Middle East. Um, I knew basically that all the folk I was going to meet there, all the Palestinians that I was going to meet there were Arab Muslims because that's just who's there, right? They're Arab Muslims. That's who those Palestinians are. Well, when I got there, I realized that um, I really didn't have my head screwed on straight, that I was actually very wrong about that. I was embarrassed, literally embarrassed, to realize that there are, of course, Greek Orthodox Palestinians. There are, of course, German Lutheran Palestinians. There are Jewish Arab Palestinians. There are Jewish Russian, now, living in Palestine, called Palestinians. I had to give myself a talking to, because clearly I was not bringing in all the information at the same time to help me understand what was around me. Perhaps one of the best worship experiences, because it was um, unsettling and nurturing at the same time, was a worship experience I had in a Protestant church in the old city of Jerusalem in Arabic. And we all know that Arabic is only used in the Muslim faith for the Quran. No, we're wrong. Here it was. It's the language of the people. And here it was being used for the mass like we will have today my words being in Arabic. You know, really, really kind of like, whoa, this world, wow. We, we carry prejudices or assumptions sometimes that we're not even aware we're carrying until we come in contact with something that is different and shines a spotlight on some assumption that we have. 
So I would say today, let's not be too hard on the author of the epistle to the Hebrews with his anti-Semitic language that he's got in that epistle because we all still to this day comfort ourselves or justify ourselves in an over-against kind of posture. So not so bad on their part doing that or perhaps bad on their part doing that and equally bad on our part doing that. I kind of of the mind and I would suggest today that Jesus expects us to deal with other people differently than over against. I think of how he spent his life for us to try to communicate to us the power of love in all circumstances. I think we're expected as we find our way through this complicated world to keep that love ethic central to how we conduct ourselves. Amen? Yeah. But I'm not done yet. <laughs> That'd be just too short, right? It'd just be too short. I'm only, I'm only starting now. Today is World Communion Sunday. What a great Sunday, right? Why is it a great Sunday? It's a great Sunday because if you have that religious imagination that I'm talking about, picture a globe rotating through a day and every hour of the day, so all the minutes of the day, Christian churches are having communion. All around the world, communion is being celebrated today. Different countries, different languages, different cultures. I get excited about that. I don't know if, that, if you do. I get excited about that because it, it gets me to be thinking about how this is more than us, this Christian movement. It's more than Westlake. It's more than America, you know. This is a big thing that's going on. It's a global movement, this movement of Christ. And it's not just English. It's in China, it's in Brazil, it's spoken in Swahili. It's an incredible thing to think about. For me, that helps to underscore just how important it is for us to have some kind of global mindset when we think about what God is doing and we think about this movement that we are a part of. And as we think that way, as we think about the movement of Jesus around the globe happening, I think the hard questions that come to our mind is, well, do we define ourselves as over against others on this globe? Or do we define ourselves somehow as alongside in some kind of partnership with others on this globe? Now, I don't say this just to ask an interesting or academic question. I say this because so much of the world is at war. There is so much blood being shed, and it's not just between people of different faiths, it's within faiths. Surely, this is not 
how God would want us to be as his family. How do we get to how he wants us to be? How do we move into what awaits us in the future? Because it seems that what is awaiting us in the future is a world that's a little different than we're used to. A church, perhaps, that's a little different than we're used to. Now, I know statistics can be really boring, but indulge me for a second because I came across some very interesting things that just, uh, I don't know, knock your socks off. To my mind, they knock your socks off. You'll see, my socks will be gone by the time the sermon <laughs> is over. In 1900, the vast majority of Christians were of European descent. 68% of all the Christians around the globe were in Europe. 14% in North America. 4% were in Asia. Only 2% were in Africa. Of all the Christians in the world, 2% in Africa. 105 years later, 19% of the Christians were in Africa. 17% of the Christians were in Asia. Only 26% of the Christians on the globe were in Europe. In 1900, 7% of the Christians around the globe were of non-European descent. In 2005, 37% were of non-European descent. And it's projected that by 2050, 50% of the Christians around the globe will be non-European descent. With about 30% in Africa and 20% in Asia. God is being very fruitful with the message of Christ in other cultures and in other continents. And apparently not as fruitful for us Westerners. We've gotten blasé about it. We don't care anymore about it. We're um, too comfortable. I don't know. I don't, who, what is it that we're all becoming secular and not church-bound? But Christ's on fire in Africa and in Asia. And our church, bless us, is growing in other places around the world, places that will be celebrating with us Holy Communion today, places where in 30 years there will be more Christians than what we're familiar with. So in 1900, except for Brazil, all the other top 10 countries in size of Christian population were uh, Western. In 2005, more than half were non-Western. Number two, Brazil. Number three, China. China, the third largest Christian population on the globe. You think of that when you think of China? No. Mexico, Philippines, six. India, seven. Nigeria, nine. 
And 2050 is projected that America will be the only country in the top 10, that's a Western country, in the top 10 of population size of Christians. So I find this very exciting and depressing, um, both. I wish things were going on better in America. Um, part of our particular challenge here in Westlake is to do better than the average bear. We're going to try to do something better, aren't we? To have a church that's not in decline but is growing into a new generation. We want to defy the predictions, uh, but the deck is stacked against us, apparently, it seems. We might wonder in some sermon series as to what we might do to change at least the course that's in front of us. One of the people from the nine o'clock service said, well, the good news of this is that the mission field in, <laughs> in, Western, in the Western countries is large. We've got a large mission field. Well, yeah, I guess that, that's a way to look at it from a redemption, resurrection side, right? The church is going to be becoming increasingly diverse, and this is going to be manifested undoubtedly in our practices, since the center, the balance of power of Christianity will be elsewhere. Perhaps the cultural practices that go along with how we do church will find will be changing for our grandchildren. Um, most likely, our grandchildren who become clergy will not be reading dead German theologians. They'll be reading theologians that are alive and well and coming from the third world. The freshness of the faith will find its way into academia. What might be these changes that are before us? Well, they won't be changes at the core of our faith. They'll be changes at the edges that some of us will feel are the core. But they're not, friends. It's the edges. The central message will be the same, whether it's proclaimed from Nigeria, from China, from Peru. And in that, we find our brother and sisterhood with those people around the globe who may seem other than us, but are us and are our family. So I just wanted to ramble a bit this morning about the wonder of it all, of God's work through Christ on this globe, and how even if it feels like it's gotten out of your control and God has run ahead of you, do not fret. Hopefully God is always ahead of us, clearing a way, setting an agenda, challenging us to live into our better selves to become the better thing that God intends for the whole human family. So let us today celebrate the wonder of what God is doing and buck up a bit about what might be the challenges 
in front of us to keep up with God. Amen. Amen. Well, Rachel is having a lot of fun this morning with, with the women who are still with her and um, at the women's retreat along the coast. I know some were there just for a day and came back. Maybe some in the choir is why we had such a good women's group this morning singing. But she sends her uh, regards to you all and uh, says, well, do it yourself. <laughs> so my opportunity to invite you to put the ushers to work. We take an offering each Sunday because we think it's a good thing, one, for us to make an act of discipleship, giving our thanks to God and offering back unto God's operation the blessings that God has shared with us. Two, we're realistic and know that to do these things, they need the support of our funds as well as our prayers and our energy. So ushers, help us to live out our faith and make our church stronger. giving you two there. Do you want to? Yep. Okay.
God from whom all blessings flow. Bring all creatures here below. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. When the doxology is over, just walk back out with these. All right? I'm not going to say a prayer over them. Okay. Okay. Good. Holy Spirit. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Be seated, please. And let us center ourselves to consecrate and celebrate the Lord's Supper. We give you thanks, Almighty God, because you were God even before time began. You have seen every sunrise and every day begin since you first gave form to our home, this earth. You launched it into your universe, shaped its hills, and filled its seas. When space was ready, you brought life out of the waters and in time made us in your image, male and female, we give you thanks, we give you praise. Yet we were not content with such a paradise and we rebelled, putting our wills before yours. Even then, we found you boundless in love. Time after time, you reached out your hand to touch our lives with loving kindness, led us from captivity to life in the land you promised. You made covenant to take us to be your people, to love and to cherish. And we took you as God and ruler, promising to forsake all others. You put your words on the lips of women and men. They spoke your words of law gave themselves in the struggle for justice and taught us to joyfully sing your glory at all times. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, the Lord Jesus took bread in his hands, lifting his eyes to heaven. He gave you thanks and broke the bread. He gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. And after the supper, he took the cup, and again he offered you thanks and gave it to his disciples, saying, Drink from this, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant, my blood poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. Eat this bread and drink this cup in remembrance of me. Send, we pray, your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts gathered here out of love for you. And may your Spirit make real the signs that through the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup together we may know Christ's presence among us. By the Spirit make us one with the goodness of Christ. that we might be one with each other in service to our neighbors.
Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit and your holy church, all your people and all your works glorify and honor you, Almighty God, now and forever. Amen. The gifts of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The gifts of God for the people of God. All right. Together, let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's all join hands for the benediction and the choral extroit. I know, I love it. Holy God, we are amazed by the power of your spirit in this world. Do not pass us by. Walk with us as well and help us to walk with you as we leave this place to share your love and to serve. Amen. Amen.